Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A quick note on this week's episode. It contains discussions of death and assisted suicide. Although presented in a loving manner, it may be distressing to some listeners. And it's where only I can see It's not the same as the flame You know, being supportive of it doesn't change the grief. But I think it was important for all of us to feel that we were in this together and that we were supporting Brian. And that that was really the goal, was to support him and make it possible for him to have autonomy and agency in his life and his death. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I am your host, John Williamson, and we are back with the final episode in our series on grief and grieving. This one is a very different perspective, uh, but a very important one. And the, the guest that joins me this week is New York Times bestselling author Amy Bloom. And uh, some of you out there may have read some of her previous books. Uh, this one is very, very different from her prior works. And uh, this one is a very personal memoir uh, that she wrote uh, in tribute and in honor of her late husband, Brian, uh, who unfortunately was um, uh, was struck with the devastating illness of Alzheimer's. And, and so those of you out there who maybe have had a loved one who's gone through this experience, um, it is an absolutely devastating, uh, brutal disease um, that, that just takes and takes and takes day over day over day. Um, and, uh, like Pauline boss, uh, Dr. Pauline boss, I guess we had on, uh, several years ago who wrote, uh, her seminal work on, um, what she calls ambiguous loss. She talks specifically about Alzheimer's and, uh, the effects that it has on the individual, but also on the family around them and having to essentially go through, you know, the grieving process day in and day out, uh, as you lose more and more of that person before your very eyes. And so, um, absolutely heart-wrenching uh, book uh, about her journey with him. Um, and again, a- a- as I warned at the top of the episode, this one is um, this one was tough. I- I'll be honest; it was tough to read. Um, it was tough to to think about put your putting yourself in that position where the person that you love most in this world is slowly deteriorating, and there's literally nothing you can do about it uh, in that moment. There is no cure at this time for Alzheimer's. And so uh, what do you do in that situation? And, and Brian in his own words says, you know, I wanted to go out on my feet and not on my knees. And, um, and, and he chose to, to go the path of, of seeking out uh, patient assisted suicide. Um, and uh, this is a story about that. And so how do you, um, how do you encounter grief? How do you meet grief? Um, you know, when, when you know, uh, that it's coming when that person isn't lost yet, but is slowly being lost over time. And, um, and, you know, heading into, uh, as Amy did heading into a particular day that that was going to be the last day she would see, uh, her beloved husband. And so, um, absolutely, uh, heart wrenching and, and, um, but a beautiful tribute to, to Brian. So, we talk all about her brand new book. It's called In Love, A Memoir of Love and Loss. Uh, it was an instant New York Times bestseller, New York Times 100 Notable Books of 2022. It was Time Magazine's number one best nonfiction book of 2022 and the 100 must-read books of 2022, as well as um, Amazon's best biographies and memoirs of 2022. Uh, it hit all sorts of different lists. So um, the Sunday Times and uh, you know got 
rave reviews. As I said, I've, I've read it. Um, it's a beautiful tribute, uh, to, to her husband. So, um, definitely, uh, it's a sensitive topic. Obviously, you know, the, the, um, the idea of assisted suicide is, is one that has been, um, debated for years. I remember as a kid, uh, the first instance of this taking place and just all the controversy around it. Um, and so it's, it's a tough one. What do you do, uh, if you are yourself encountered with the fact that you know that you are becoming less and less of you essentially over a, a period of time? And, uh, and of course, you know, what do you do if you're the loved one in support of that person and their wishes are to go out on their own terms? And so, uh, she talks all about it in the interview, uh, even more obviously in the book. Uh, so if you, if you're interested after listening to the interview and, uh, learning more about her story and, and reading in, in much, much more detail than we could possibly cover on the podcast, highly recommend the book, um, other than that, before we get to the episode, general housekeeping stuff. Uh, again, this is the last episode in the grief series. Next week, we will be getting into a brand new uh, series. We're going to get into some scripture stuff. We haven't touched on that in a while, so we've got some really cool guests coming up there. Uh, a returning guest, a fan favorite, and also uh, some brand new guests that we've never had on before. Uh, and hopefully, my hope, my desire, my goal, my plan is to touch on a lot of the the questions that uh, you guys have submitted over the years. So hopefully we'll get to all those. If you have some specific questions, uh, feel free to, uh, uh, email us, uh, the podcast at gmail.com. Um, or you can find our contact on the website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. You can also go there. You can find our web store. We've got some cool t-shirts designed by some very talented humans, uh, as well as, uh, mugs, pint glasses, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, you can also find our blog on there. So there's some new blog posts up there. If you haven't checked them out uh, already, there's some new stuff up there and more to come. Uh, what else? Social media links. Uh, you can listen to our entire back catalog of episodes. We're somewhere around like the 160s at this point. Lots and lots of stuff over the years. And so you can go back and hear Adam's sweet voice. Um, other than that, uh, you can link to our Patreon if you want to support us there. Um you know, lots of exclusive content being uploaded these days. So early access to blogs, uh, behind the scenes photos going up there. And then of course, if you like the full episodes, instead of, uh, having to wait a week to hear the other half, uh, I'm putting the uncut unedited full hour plus long conversations up, uh, for any subscribers at $10 or more on, um, Patreon. So if you like that, that's there as well. Otherwise, uh, appreciate all the support. Uh, most of our audience is comprised of listeners who either found us by accident. <laughs> so appreciate you guys stumbling on to us and also uh, word of mouth. So if you like what we're doing, you know, please consider uh, rating and uh, what is the other one? Rating, giving us, yeah, stars, reviewing. That's the other one. Gosh, it's been a long day. Rating, reviewing, and um, you know, just spreading the good word. Uh, really appreciate that. And subscribe, as always, so uh, you don't miss a single episode. Again, we're releasing every week uh, this season, since we're going into seasons now. So um, you can expect brand new content every single week until I run out. I think, that's, uh, I think we're about 18 to 20 episodes for the season. So lots, lots more to come. And uh, you know, lots of cool topics that I plan on covering. So... Thank you guys so much for listening. Hopefully uh, the series has been helpful to you in some way um, and, and at the very least helps you feel a little bit less alone. So love you guys. Thanks for supporting. Without further ado, I give you Amy freaking Bloom. Welcome to the podcast. I have this week, uh, my guest is Amy Bloom, uh, author of In Love, A Memoir of Love and Loss. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm glad to be here. So Amy, uh, you're you're a writer, but this book in particular is a very special one and very, very personal. Uh, So talk a little bit about um, what led you to to writing this book and putting this in in, in words so that people could could read about your, uh, your story. 
The only thing that led me to writing this book was my husband, Brian, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and made a decision very early on, having seen Alzheimer's in our extended family. That is, he said the long goodbye was not for him, and he wanted to end his life while he still had judgment and discernment and was still himself. And we went back and forth about that a fair amount. But in the end, I absolutely supported his decision. And one of his decisions was that I should write about this because, as he said, you're the writer. And it really mattered to him that people should learn to talk more about end-of-life decisions and plans, whatever they were, but that that was not something to be kept a secret. And I think he had always felt that way. He had always felt that death was part of life and that people should talk about their plans, their wishes, their rights, their desires. And so he felt very strongly that I should write the book, which is why I wrote it, because I have limited interest in writing about myself and had barely read any memoirs, let alone contemplated writing one. Well, it's, as I said before we started recording, it's absolutely a, a beautiful tribute uh, uh, to your husband and um, beautifully put, devastating, obviously, in all the ways you would expect, um, but but beautiful nonetheless. So before we dive too much into um, into the book and kind of this, this, this experience, this process, tell people about Brian. Who was Brian? What was he like? How did you guys meet and all that good stuff? Because you have a really kind of beautiful romantic story behind all of this. Well, it's nice that you feel that way. Um, we had known each other as neighbors in a small town and were really, after some time, I mean, we'd known each other for years, uh, we're, we're very much drawn to each other. We were a small town scandal. We left our partners. We fell in love. We didn't leave town. And then we had 10 really great years together, sort of <clears throat> late in life romance. He was a big guy with a big laugh and a big heart and kind of a big dog in general. Um, and that was fine with me. You know, I, I, I liked his warmth and his outgoing nature. And, um, you know, he was, he was just, you know, if you, if you don't like big dogs, you don't like big dogs, but <laughs> I did. And, um, we really had a, a just a great, great time. We were very lucky in our marriage. Um, I was very lucky that he liked my children so much, and then he was just mad for our grandchildren. And then the last three years of our marriage, he just began to change in ways that did not seem to me just about aging. There just were really marked differences, and other people began to comment on it. It was interesting to me. His best friend was very reluctant to tell me that he had noticed some significant changes, but his best friend's daughter, who had known Brian as Uncle Brian since she was born, came to me and said, is everything all right? And it was just a certain kind of withdrawing, going from being gregarious to being quite aloof, talking only about the past, losing most interest in reading, which he had always liked to do, and finding it harder to communicate, which I think for him was the most frustrating thing, that, you know, this is a guy with a pretty big vocabulary, and suddenly nouns were shrinking to be things, and people's names were escaping him. So he was just referring to this guy or that guy or our little darling because he couldn't remember the name of one of the granddaughters. And that was, I think, quite frustrating to him. So after several years, um, he finally went to a neurologist and got a diagnosis. And of course, they never say, oh, you have Alzheimer's. They say, it seems like it's mm. probably the case. We wouldn't know unless we did an autopsy. Um, because they don't. Mm. It's, it's, it, there's, you know, even though there are very simple and straightforward tests for dementia, and they can tell you that, but they can't necessarily tell you the kind. But also, we didn't care what kind it was. What we knew was that it was, it was progressive, and we could see that it was progressing rapidly. And that was 
you know, those last couple of years were hard, it didn't make it not good, but it certainly made it different than the preceding decade. Yeah, for folks who have not encountered Alzheimer's firsthand, it's a really a devastating uh, illness. Um, one of my favorite uh, psychologists, uh, Dr. Pauline Boss, talks about, you know, when she talks about um, ambiguous loss, and she talks about Alzheimer's specifically in the sense that it's really this disease where you're, you know, that person's so- slowly sort of dying in front of you, and you're losing, you're suffering loss every single day. It's like a death by a thousand paper cuts. And uh, one of the things that you know, we don't seem to talk about enough as a society as not only the impact on that individual who is going through these changes and, and suffering these memory losses, but the person who kind of uh, falls into that caretaker role. So talk about just kind of the, the stress and kind of the changes to, you know, the dynamic of your relationship as you find yourself in this new role of having to kind of compensate for some of the things that came naturally to him early on, but were kind of disappearing slowly before your eyes. Well, I'm sure that there were a lot of things disappearing before either one of us recognized it. I mean, part of what you learn about Alzheimer's is that long before the diagnosis, however it is that you come to have a diagnosis, there have already been symptoms, and probably not just two or three years, but probably this building up over six, seven, eight years. So... There were a lot of things that weren't very different um, because I tended to be more sort of the, you know, the domestic person and the domestic organizer um, and the calendar keeper. And that, that was simply part of our relationship. But it was learning how to back lead, really, um, when Brian and I got married. It was very important to him that he be able to do a first dance. And he was, although... So he used to say he was a football player. He wasn't an athlete. And so, um, you know, he was not super coordinated as a dancer. And so we, we took dance lessons and we had a lovely lady who actually explained to us about sort of back leading and no, no, you shouldn't, except sometimes you must. And that's what I would think of often when we were going through those last few years, just how to give Brian all the autonomy and agency that he was used to and that he needed without leading to disaster. You know, so one time I'd gotten in the habit of sort of leaving him either a grocery list or like a little reminder of what he was going to do that day. And he was going to go to the stained glass studio where he was working on some stained glass because he had retired uh, reluctantly because he was really not able to do the work anymore. He had been an architect And um, he got lost on the way to the grocery store, and he came back and he said, I I couldn't find it. The grocery store is four minutes from our house. And um, so I left him directions, and he said, no, I want to go again. I said, okay, and I left him very specific directions, and he went. And then about an hour later, he came home with no groceries, and he said, it was too hard, at which point we we just did the grocery shopping together. Um, you know, on the other hand, he had said to me, oh, I really want to see if I can go fishing. He liked to fish very much. And he drove to the guy who was um, his fishing guy, the, the captain, and, you know, he had his GPS. So he got there, and I knew it was not going to be that bad because it was only 10 minutes away. Um, but in fact, he got lost for about an hour and a half. And at that point we were both like, "Mm, we need to do this differently. And so we began to do things differently as one does. And the challenge is always, how do you allow somebody the maximum opportunity to have agency and autonomy without it going really badly? And also different people assess and understand their symptoms differently. Some people never really acknowledge them, and some people are just utterly crushed by the loss, and a lot of people go back and forth. Yeah, it's um, it, it had to be an awful kind of conversation that must have occurred between the two of you when you realized, you know, when you got the results back finally after the tests and figured out what exactly was going on, because 
you know, it is something that you can sort of plan ahead for, you know, you know, what's going to happen. And, and, you know, in the book, you talk about the fact that you just started doing a ton of research on the topic. And so had, had Brian just kind of let it ride out, you know, what, what are some of the things that, that happen with that for people who aren't as familiar? Oh, well, if Brian had made a different choice, we have actually a close friend, uh, married to somebody else who also played a lot of football and, um, certainly wasn't definitive that Brian's dementia was caused by football, but it is also the case, however, anecdotally, that he and I both knew four men with whom he had played football, all of whom had early onset Alzheimer's. So I think if Brian had chosen differently, then he would probably still be alive. Um, his loss of short-term memory and an ability to organize had already really snowballed. So I would like to think I would have been able to keep him home still at this point, but there's also a point at which it's simply not possible most of the time. I mean, occasionally it is, it is possible. Um, but of course, it's a progressive disease, and it's not just memory, as if memory is just like this separate little unit. You know, memory is such an enormous part of how we organize our personality and also the ability to learn things. I mean, memory also includes things like somebody saying, um, I'll be back at six. If you don't remember that they're going to be back at six, it's very anxiety provoking. And if you leave a note that says, I'll be back at six, but the person doesn't see the note or has forgotten what the note said, or you've put it in a text on their phone, but they can't find their phone, you know, it's just a lot of trying to stay ahead of the changes and swim with the changes, which just takes a lot of um, more Zen practice than most of us who are not actually the Dalai Lama have. And that's the job. The job is sort of practicing and responding with sympathy and kindness and also allowing yourself some time to feel sorry for yourself and pretty tired. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in some of, some of the cases too, it, it gets so severe that, you know, even even simple tasks that, that come to us kind of, you know, without thinking, like eating and, and that sort of thing becomes a great difficulty and so it really is just a very devastating uh, illness. And so when you guys started having conversations about that, um, like how you were going to proceed forward, um, talk about that a little bit. You know, was this always kind of the his first option? Um, and, and, and Yeah, and you, you did look into some other more local options too. So talk about what led you to Zurich, which is eventually where you ended up. Right. Well, um I would say a couple of things. One is Brian was um, famously a hard man to stop. As I said to somebody, the, his guiding principles were take yes for an answer, better to ask forgiveness than permission. He was raised Catholic, and if you think there's going to be a uh, if you think there's going to be a fight, throw the first punch. And I feel like that last was really a big part of his response to the Alzheimer's diagnosis which is, you said a few minutes ago, you said, well, in some cases, people lose their ability to eat and so on. It's like, no, in all cases, it's yeah. a terminal disease. It's not an affliction. It's a terminal disease. And so if you live long enough with dementia, you will not be able to eat. You will not be able to walk freely. I mean, those things will be taken from you long after lots of your internal cognitive functioning has been taken. So he was very clear about it and sort of very strongly clear about it. You know, at one point I said to him, honey, you know, I will take care of you. We can do this. I will look after you. I will keep you as home, home as long as I possibly can. And he said, you're not hearing me. He said, I don't want people to be relieved when I die. I'd like to die as me, as he said. I prefer to um, die on my feet than live on my knees, which was mm. a very Brian thing to say, and it's 100% how he felt. 
Gosh, yeah. So talk a little bit about, so when, when he makes this decision and um, you decide to kind of pursue some of those options, you do talk about there are some, you know, states that do allow for, uh, you know, assisted suicide and, but you also talk about how, how tricky it is, you know, a lot of the obstacles that are kind of put forth um, and, and ultimately why that was not a reasonable option and, and what led you to looking at um, th- this uh, organization in, in Zurich. Well, we were, we were quite keen. We we're like, oh, there are nine, 10 right to die states. And then you hear, oh, right to die. You're like, okay, let's saddle up. We can go to Vermont, have a long weekend. Brian can pass away legally and painlessly with a physician's assistant. But it turns out, of course, I shouldn't say of course, but I am a, I am a novelist. And so you do expect those plot twists. So it turns out that there is no place in the United States, no state, in which you can, if you have dementia, um, receive physician assistance in ending your life at any point, because all of the laws, which are remarkably cookie cutter, people should draw their own conclusions about that, but they are identical. And they basically all say, if you have six months to live with a terminal illness, and you have two physicians who will attest to that, and you are then in a position to have at least one in-person interview, usually two in-person interviews, and write a statement about this. This is all, by the way, right? You have six months to live. So most people are not in great shape when they have six months to live. But if you have dementia, the point at which you would have six months to live, your dementia would be so far gone that you would probably not even be capable of having a conversation, let alone being persuasive to a physician. So in America, it is non-existent. If you have dementia, you are not eligible for any assistance in any right-to-die state. And so then I began to look around, and there are European countries, uh, the Netherlands, I think Brussels, I think, where if you are a citizen, um, you can arrange for physician-assisted end-of-life procedures. It it, it doesn't strike me as simple, but it is not unbearably complicated. But they, of course, don't want what they refer to, which I can understand, as death tourists. They don't want people coming for that specific purpose. However, in Switzerland, there are now two organizations, one called Dignitas, which is the one that I was familiar with, and one called Pegasus, which is also outside of Zurich, which was also started by some people who had been involved in Dignitas. And they require a fair amount of documentation, and they require that the person applying be cognitively high-functioning, be able to demonstrate judgment and discernment, which is where the ticking clock comes in. You know, you would always like to stay later. It's a good party. You don't want to leave too soon. But in this case, it's also crucial that you not leave too late because you won't be able to go. And that was, that was what Brian said. Brian said, you got to leave early or you can't leave at all. And that was true. And mm. Dignitas was a very good um, nonprofit organization to work with and uh, responsive and supportive. And every inch of the way, every inch of the way, both before we got to Zurich and while we were there, constantly saying to Brian, please feel free to change your mind. If at any point you feel this is not what you want to do, we will be 100% supportive. Please don't hesitate to tell us that you have changed your mind. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, I thought that was pretty remarkable. Um, 
you know, that aspect of it. And then of course, like, you know, some of the other things that you have to, uh, you know, um, accomplish before they will, I think you use the term green light you, um, make a lot of sense, you know, like a lot of things they have you, you know, walk you through. Um, one of the things being, you know, um, I believe you had to supply a letter from a, uh, psychiatrist saying that, you know, essentially that, you know, yes, he's making this on his own, you know, this make, making this decision essentially on his own terms and, and, you know, there, and I think the other thing that was interesting too, was that there was a law there, I believe, if I remember correctly, where they, you had to in some way prove that there was no financial motive to this as well. So as he said, (laughs) lucky for us, he was an architect. So it was not (laughs) as if he was going to be leaving me a vast fortune. And we, we were very lucky in that sense. Um, but also, yes, we were eligible because I, I was not going to profit financially from his death. I mean, again, it's one of those things you're like, exactly how do they determine that? But in our case, it was pretty clear cut. Yeah. And I want to go back to the, the, uh, the therapist a little bit too. Um, you talk about the fact that you started to see someone and they started to kind of help you navigate sort of the, the conversations you're going to have, especially like you mentioned, you know, Brian adored his grandchildren and uh, sounds like he was an incredible grandfather. You know, the, the typical kind who he's sneaking candy, you know, and that sort of thing um, reminds me of my dad. <laughs> um, and, and obviously that that's an incredibly difficult situation under any circumstances, no matter if the death is assisted or they die in their sleep, you know. So, so talk about uh, the preparation that you guys, uh, did in terms of preparing to tell the different, uh, members of family, friends, cause obviously you had to approach those things differently. We did. I mean, I think this is something that anybody facing this situation goes through, which is who do you tell? Who do you not tell? I'm always really very sad for people who feel that there is so much conflict within the family that they can't share their decisions and they can't get that support. Brian got pushback from an old friend of his who wrote to him and said, as people do, I've Googled Alzheimer's and uh, you don't, you don't need to end your life. It's, it's going to be okay. And you have plenty of good years ahead of you and blah, blah, blah. And Brian said to me, well, here's what I want to say. He said, so, you know, right back. And basically he said, Dear so-and-so, I appreciate your concerns. We are available for supportive and loving and encouraging remarks only. Love, Brian. Mm. With his family, um, who are um, devout Catholics, and his mother, um, we were quite concerned about it, about sharing the information with them. We had had a cautionary tale with a friend whose best friend had early onset Alzheimer's in her 50s. And she, the friend and the friend's husband, had begun to talk about going to Dignitas. And the woman with Alzheimer's uh, spoke to her sister about it. And her sister flew out and confronted the husband and said, if anything happens to my sister... If her life ends in any way due to any action, I will, I will arrange to have you prosecuted, and my goal will be to send you to jail. Now, that doesn't happen very often, um, but in fact, you know, the law says you cannot in any way assist. And having heard that story, um, we both wanted to be careful, but it's also the case that when we shared this with his mother, was a wonderful person. Um, she said, I prayed about this, and I prayed that my boy would not have to go through this terrible, terrible disease, because I have seen it. And she was 100% supportive. You know, being supportive of it doesn't change the grief, but I think it was important for all of us to feel that we were in this together and that we were supporting Brian. And that that was really the goal, was to support him and make it possible for him to have autonomy and agency in his life and his death. With the kids, we basically stuck with, 
a version of the truth that was appropriate for their age. Yeah, that, that made a lot of sense. Uh, and the way that you approached it, I think you even said, you know, you, you, you told them that, um, you know, uh, he, he passed away in Europe from a, from a brain disease, which is, which is true. Yeah. Um, you know, without getting into specifics that, that aren't necessarily age appropriate at that time. And I think you put it, uh, beautifully in the book. You said, you know, at some point as they get older, you know, perhaps this book will serve as a way for them to remember him by and, and kind of learn more of the specifics when, when it's time, you know, um, the other thing that it was kind of interesting too, is you, you mentioned his, his mother and kind of the surprise at, at how receptive she was to the idea. And I would imagine that, uh, just between the family and, and you and Brian came from very different religious backgrounds as well. And obviously religion often plays a big part in this debate over whether or not, you know, assisted suicide is, is ethically or more morally right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure your friends are no exception to being a mixture of different uh, backgrounds, faiths and no faiths at all. Um, what was kind of the, the dialogue around that within, within your friends and family groups? You know, were there people who were kind of opposed from a religious standpoint or not really? I'm sure that in Brian's family, as I say, uh, you know, a largely Catholic and largely religious Catholic family, that I'm sure that there were people within the family who strongly disagreed with this. But there were two things. One is that um, Brian himself was very clear on what he wanted to do. And his mother felt that this was the right thing for him. And she did not only did not oppose it, she, she was supportive. So once she was supportive, the rest of the family tended to sort of fall into line, although I'm sure they had their own reservations. And it was a terrible loss for everybody. Um, Uh, my side of the family I can't say they were unambivalently supportive because of course the other feeling is just loss and grief but the the truth is that whether he ended his life you know a few years ago or he lived with alzheimers we were going to lose him either way and we were already losing him, and that was clear. So I think uh, when we were in Zurich, the the physician who interviewed him said, well, you know, I see you, you don't seem to uh, believe in many things. I think, I think the man interviewing him was quite a religious person. And Brian said, oh, I believe in lots of things. It just doesn't include the afterlife. <laughs> and, um, and the man said to him, well, You'll find out before I will. Let me know. And so that's how we left it. Yeah, that was that was a pretty cute comment on his part. <laughs> I think and, so. And he may have at the end. There were some uh, some moments you had when you returned home. Yes. So who knows? <laughs> um, one of the things that that I couldn't help but think about is is you recount a lot of your uh, of your time in Zurich and after you guys arrived and just kind of the the preparation of even like what to pack and how to return home and everything. And, and as someone, uh, from a, the perspective of being a loving spouse, I, I cannot even imagine, um, you know, trying to put on the brave face and, and make his last, you know, hours, days, whatever, uh, on earth comfortable and enjoyable, but at the same time, still knowing in the background, like what, what needs to be done and what's going to happen. Um, talk a little bit about once you arrive there, like just trying to get through that time together, but still try to maintain, you know, some sort of special time together, you know, uh, in those days leading up to, uh, to the end. Well, sure. I mean, you want it to have value. You want it to have beauty, but it's also the case that you are walking around. I mean, it's just, well, I don't know what else to say. It's, you know, grief in one hand and love in the other. And it's not as if you ever get to put the grief down, you know. I mean, even when we slept, you know, I remember a couple of nights when we were in Zurich, you know, Brian kind of turned on his side and sort of rolled himself up and was sleeping very much apart from me. And I felt that it was not my place to tell them that he had to be more connected to the world that he was leaving. And so... You know, we 
we didn't get to sleep as close as we did on some other nights when we were there. And I think that's the way it is the whole time. And I think anybody who is caring for somebody who is terribly ill or has a very painful chronic illness, everybody understands this. You know, you, you do the best you can. You want to make, you want there to be as much beauty as there can be. I mean, there was a, we did actually have a lovely afternoon at one point, um, just walking uh, along the streets in the old part of town. And, you know, we had real moments, which are, which are also sort of astonishing, right? As they always are in the face of grief, where you, for those 10 minutes, are having a great time looking for souvenirs for the grandchildren. And then, you know, reality sort of comes back in like clouds in front of the sun. And it's not that the sun wasn't there. It was there. You remember it. You just had it. Also, now it's covered by clouds. Yeah, so so talk about you know, the the day comes and obviously you know what's coming and Brian seemed like you know he was not he didn't seem like a he didn't come across at least in, in in the sense of a man who was afraid he knew what must be done and where you know what he had intended to do and um not that that made the situation for you any any better at all but um he, he seemed like he took it with you know in stride and with grace and. Um, and after that, obviously then you're forced to, to start to process. Cause I imagine that at that point, like your therapist, I think even said, it's like, I, I know if you're like me in the sense of, uh, in the face of, of death, you know, I lost my mom this last fall. Um, and it happened very, very quickly. Um, I, I tend to go into sort of this get things done mode. Sure. And it, you know, in a sense, that's a, a protective mechanism, of course, like, you know, I'm protecting myself in that moment by just occupying, you know, I, I know things need to get done. So we make funeral arrangements, we make plans, but then there comes a time when, when none of that is there and you're forced to sort of push into your grief and, and acknowledge what, what has happened. This person is no longer physically near me in a way that they used to be. And so talk about once that finally set in, you know, what, what did, uh, what did what was that like? I guess, and and what were more importantly because this is part of a series in grief. I just interviewed um, um, uh, a couple folks on 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 the subject, uh, Megan Devine and and some others. Um, talk about how the community around you responded because that's not always that's always kind of the, the the sticking point at least in our society is that it's not always in the healthiest most constructive way. But it seemed that your family banded around you pretty quickly. I mean, it's not always in the most constructive and helpful way, and that's because people aren't perfect. Mm. And I think among others, I mean, I, on one hand, I think if somebody is offering you condolences in a way that makes you feel worse, you should feel free to say, I'm so sorry, I can't have this conversation right now. And if you can't do that gracefully, well, that's too bad. Then you can't do it gracefully. But... um my general feeling about these things is that you have to get through them. You don't have to get through them elegantly or with charm and beauty. Just just slog through it is fine. Dirty and in your pajamas is okay. Um, I really made a decision. I actually I remember at Brian's uh, memorial that I was not going to judge how people offered their sympathy to me because we are people. And therefore, we are basically, um, I guess the polite way to put it would be, we're imperfect. And that is not going to change. And it's not likely to get better under stress. Although, it's always funny to me. I mean, you know, there's always, when you go through a loss, you recognize that somebody you've been very fond of, who seemed very fond of you, has been absolutely and utterly useless or worse than useless during your terrible grief. And the lady up the street with the nine cats, who's a pain in the ass and talks to you only about her golden girl's decor has in fact brought you a casserole every other day for two weeks. 
<laughs> and so I just said to myself, I'm not judging this. You know, people are going to do their best. They're going to make mistakes. I have made mistakes. I am not judging this. And that was helpful to me because I didn't have to spend a lot of energy you know, gnashing my teeth over people's stupidity because I think I was a little more prepared to be like, I've been stupid. They're going to be stupid. It's not going to change anything, and I'm not going to let it change anything. But I will say that one of the most valuable things to me was creating my own memorial for Brian beyond, beyond the event. You know, I planted a tree in our yard. It has a plaque with his name and one of his favorite poems. And I can go sit by that tree whenever I need to. And it's been, um, it has been a real source of comfort. That's, that's beautiful. So uh, before we go, tell people what's something about Brian that, that you wish the world to know? Huh. Well, most of it is probably in, <laughs> in the book. Um, his best friend said to me, oh, I think B.A. would really love this. You make him look good. And I was like, that was the job. I wanted to make him look good. Because he was good. Yeah. Um, what do I think? Um, oh, he was a big crybaby, which was something I really loved about. He really was. You yeah. could not watch a Charmin commercial or a cat food commercial or, God forbid, an AT&T commercial without, like, big tears running down his handsome face. And I uh -huh. love that about him. That's beautiful. I, I identify with that very closely. The Olympics are a hard thing for me to get through. All those inspirational stories, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate um, you sharing a little bit of Brian with the world. Um, this, no doubt, could not have been an easy book to write, unlike what you're used to writing uh, typically. Um, but um, I think it's an absolutely beautiful uh, memoir and, and tribute to, uh, to a man that you, uh, clearly love dearly. And, um, so thank you for sharing a little bit of him with the world. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I Thanks helpful to people. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I think, um, I think th things like this open up the conversation and I think oh. that's what needs to happen both when it comes to, and I, and I think when we can personalize it, it makes it a little easier for people to connect to. So I think, uh, books like yours, I think, are going to do the, girl, the world a great service in terms of the way that in which we uh, respond to death and grief and, and all those things. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. That was my wish. Cause we've
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba.